Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Elizabeth Economy, has for decades studied something that used to be considered somewhat obscure, but today is very much in vogue. That is the relationship between Chinese politics and economy to climate change and the natural world. She's now a senior fellow and director for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and she's written a number of books and influential papers examining China and climate change. She's had a fascinating career. She started out specializing in Soviet studies and took a turn working as an analyst at the CIA before getting her PhD and launching her career studying China and the environment. We kick off this conversation discussing China's recent decision to join the consensus at the Paris Climate Talks, and we have an extended conversation about some of the pressing yet under-the-radar ecological and environmental challenges that China is struggling to deal with. This is a great and fun and interesting conversation. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me or check out our archives. If you are a returning listener, I'd encourage you to leave a review on iTunes or hit me up on social media if you have any suggestions for me of topics I should cover or people I should interview. And now here is my conversation with Elizabeth Economy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think there are a number of factors that um, have been driving China uh, to change its policies on climate change. Above all, of course, uh, there's been just enormous plague of domestic air pollution uh, that the country has confronted and now has acknowledged um, publicly. And I think that has driven uh, a lot of interest at the grassroots level, uh, and it's really forced uh, the leadership uh, to begin to take action uh, to address the air on the domestic front. And even though uh, what China does to address its domestic air pollution doesn't necessarily correlate you know, 100% with addressing the challenges of global climate change uh, and CO2, for example, carbon dioxide, uh, nonetheless, there's significant overlap. So and I think a lot of it has been driven from the domestic politics. Well, politics. has has like smog in major cities gotten that much worse over the last five or six years? Um, I think, you know, it has definitely worsened. Um, and I think that's largely a function of uh, the increase in automobiles uh, in many of these major cities. So I think that accounts for a lot of the change that we've seen. Uh, but I think equally important is the fact that really China simply, the Beijing government was never willing to acknowledge the problem. So, you know, people who would visit China, you can look back actually to Premier Zhu Rongji, you know, decades ago, uh, said that flying into Beijing from Shanghai was like, uh, there was like a pan that was covering <laughs> the area. It was like flying through a pan to get down because the smog was so great. Um, you know, and, and that was back in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So this is definitely not a new problem. 
but it really is a function of the Chinese government being forced to acknowledge uh, that it's a problem. Uh, they didn't come to it willingly. Uh, they were forced in part by uh, the U.S. government and in part by the Chinese people themselves. Uh, and so, so what other than these domestic forces would you say accounted for the shift? Like, how did the U.S. government uh, force them? It, it seems like the U.S. government has a hard time forcing China to do anything. Right. I, I would never say that the U.S. government was able to force China to, to take action on climate change. I think what happened um, was that the United States uh, contributed uh, to establish a coalition of countries uh, that uh, helped China to realize that uh, by virtue of being the largest emitter of greenhouse gases, uh, that it actually needed to take action. Uh, and this included bringing together a lot of developing countries and small island states that will be very significantly affected uh, by climate change. Uh, you know, China likes to think of itself as a leader of the developing world. Uh, and so it always sort of, sort of assumes that role as a, you know, spokes country in that regard. Um, but, you know, back at Copenhagen, these countries really came together back in 2009 and said, you are not the kind of developing country that we are, <laughs> right? Uh, not only is your contribution much greater, but your, the size of your economy is much greater. You are better able to take action than you know, virtually 99% of the rest of the developing world. So it put China in another category, not simply the United States and other developed countries saying to China, you know, with rights come responsibilities, we want you to be a responsible stakeholder, all of the kinds of things that the, you know, Bush administration sort of started to talk to China about. But really the pressure came from a lot of other countries. And then I think the United States really extended a hand to China and also tried to work with China to develop a path forward that was largely in keeping with what China wanted to do anyway. So I think most people, most analysts would say that China's pledges sort of, you know, to have emissions peak um, by 2030 or to have, you know, 20% of their energy come from non-fossil fuel sources by 2030, uh, that these are uh, sort of policies that the Chinese government was already pursuing. And what what really happened was the Chinese government just brought it to the international table and made it a kind of internationally public commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, but it really wasn't going to push China beyond its comfort zone uh, to try to work toward these objectives. doesn't mean it wasn't significant, uh, but it, it, it means that it's, it's not that challenging in many respects. Um, so I think the, the U.S. said, listen, we need to do something to kind of get forward motion on climate change, and it helped work with China uh, to develop some of the steps that China might take. Um, so what does it say about China's relationship with like the international community and, and international institutions that it's willing to, um, you know, take these steps, but under like the United Nations rubric, you know, like China is, you know, the rising power and all the, uh, with all the, you know, attendant cliches yet, instead of like challenging the, the kind of dominant U S led international system, it seems to be willing and eager and able to kind of work within it, at least in, in the climate change uh, uh, sphere? Right. I think um, probably need to distinguish between the United Nations uh, and other multilateral uh, or even global institutions. Um, United Nations has always been a, a comfortable place for China. Right? It sits on the Security Council. Its weight in many respects is equal to the United States uh, in that regard. Um, and uh, it has a lot of support and has had a lot of support um, in his historically within the within the UN, you know, for the whatever it is now, 40 or more years that uh, it's been uh, formally a member of the PRC. 
Um, so I think taking action within the United Nations is actually quite comfortable for China. Uh, it's more difficult uh, when you're looking at institutions that uh, are genuinely, where all the rules are sort of uh, developed by the United States and other uh, Western countries. Like the World Bank sort of thing. Like the World, the World Bank. Bank or like the OECD, which China's not a member of, but um, uh, or the IMF. Um, these are institutions where everything seems to be constructed in some respects to advantage uh, Western countries. The United Nations doesn't really operate that way um, because, of course, the Security Council and everybody else you know, in the General Assembly has an equal vote, no matter how big or small. So um, I, I don't think that it, it took that much for China to, you know, to do this within the context of the UN. Um, nonetheless, I think it is important, and I think it also represents a, a growing sense within China that you know it does want to be perceived increasingly as a uh, large, you know, global power—not even just a regional power, but a global power. Uh, and Chinese understand that, yes, you know, with the the rights that come. Uh, you know, and the prestige that comes with being a global power, there are also these responsibilities. Uh, so I think that's part of um, part of what impelled it forward as well. Um, so as we're talking, uh, the Chinese stock market is is taking a, a tumble, a pretty significant tumble, and it's having some some global uh, implications. Um, you know, here in the United States, when um, we're in times of like economic distress, there's often this um, political, uh, you know, our line of argument uh, that suggests that concessions on climate change are detriment to economic growth. Um, is there a concern in China or are you concerned that the recent kind of stock market volatility in China might cause the government of China to um, step back some of its commitments on on climate change and, and you know, the environmental front? Um, I think it's too early for that to happen. Um, and I think it, it's not so much about the stock market plunge as it is about the overall slowdown in the Chinese economy, which, frankly speaking, actually will serve China well in terms of its uh, pledge to have its emissions peak in 2030, uh, because with the slowdown uh, in the economy is going to come a sort of a decrease in, in emissions as well. Um, we saw this happen in Russia, for example. Uh, so I think in some respects, it's not really going to have to back away from its, its climate change pledges. It may mean that on the domestic front, in terms of some more aggressive actions uh, to address domestic environmental problems, could be like soil contamination or other things where they think they can kind of put them aside for the time being, um, that those things get put on the back burner. Um, but I think that has to do more with the overall slowdown in the Chinese economy. And I think if we start to see a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of loss of jobs, for example, uh, if there were protests surrounding unemployment, uh, then I think you would definitely get uh, some slowdown in terms of implementation of uh, better environmental practices mm-hmm. in the country. I guess that, that's sort of intuitive. Um, finally, uh, on, on, on this, uh, this, this last line of questioning, um, is there – like an environmental concern in China that's sort of under the radar that, you know, you people and, and that you know and, and people in the you know, environmental community are, are aware of but hasn't really trickled out to the mainstream yet that you'd identify? Like what's the, what are some big environmental challenges facing China that people don't quite realize are so big and important? Well, I mean, if I had to pick one, it would probably be soil contamination, which has only recently come to the fore. I mean, the air pollution is what everybody gloms onto because it's the most obvious 
right? And when you're there, sometimes you can see it or you can't see because of it. Uh, sometimes you can get sick because of it. You can you know, get some respiratory infection. Uh, you can feel sooty, you know, after a day outside in the air in China. Um, so it's, it's very immediately evident to anybody who visits. You know, water pollution, similarly, it's not quite as evident, but you kind of realize they have a problem when you can't turn the tap on anywhere in the entire country and drink the water straight out of the tap. Right? Even in hotels, they provide you with bottled water because you can't drink the water. So you know that things are not right with the water situation in China. Uh, you may not fully appreciate that there's you know, growing water scarcity, and particularly in the north of China, this is an enormous problem. Uh, that actually is impinging on economic growth and the ability to, you know, put some kinds of factories in to do agriculture, et cetera. Uh, but you do understand that there's a water problem. Soil contamination, though, is sort of the, the hidden issue. Uh, and they came out with a study just maybe a year or two ago uh, that suggested that, oh, maybe roughly 16, 20% max of the soil was contaminated with uh, heavy metals um, or other pollutants. Um, but then if you started to look more closely, you'd see that some of the provinces were doing their own studies. And so down in Guangdong province, for example, in the southern part of China, uh, there were regions that were reporting up to 30% of the soil was contaminated. And then you read about, you know, the rice right, that's contaminated with cadmium that's being sold all over southern China uh, and other kinds of food safety-related issues. You know, if I had to pick one, that would be it. So the main the implication... Contamination and the food safety. Mm -hmm. And sorry, and part of the, the, and the biggest part of the problem at this point is that you're, you're not getting transparency. Right? So unlike the air quality issue where you now have, you know, air quality monitors everywhere and people can have handheld air quality monitors, the Chinese government is not willing to release where the information is to where the soil is contaminated. Mm -hmm. And so the, the big implication of soil contamination, though, is, is its uh, potential to contaminate food supplies? Absolutely. I mean, there's food, there's water contamination that can come from soil erosion. Um, it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the mercury, the cadmium, uh, there are all sorts of very uh, highly toxic uh, contaminants in Chinese soil that people are ingesting by virtue of the fruit or even, you know, milk from cows or whatever else it might be. Um, so probably have like a huge cancer burden. Very significant challenge. Huge cancer burden. Right, probably they've already like tracked that. They've already yeah. tracked the cancer tied to the water pollution. Um, but I would guess so they have you know 450 or more cancer villages in China, and this has gotten a fair amount of play um, in uh, well outside China anyway, in some play inside China. Um, but I think the soil contamination is easily as as challenging. That is so, that's so fascinating. It's not something I had ever really considered. Um, so I, I'd love to, to, to pivot a little bit and, and just find out like, uh, how you became so interested in, in these issues in, in China and in the environment. Uh, so where are you from? <laughs> um, well, I was born outside Buffalo, New York. Uh, I grew up in San Jose, California. Uh, and then I came East for college, um, where actually I studied the Soviet Union when there still was a Soviet Union. Uh, so what drove me was really... Yeah. I don't know. Like, like well, were, were your parents, were, was your parents into academia? Were they academics? Um, you know, I actually was surrounded by academics, but all scientists, no social scientists. And in fact, when, um, when I told my parents that I was going to study political science and study the Soviet Union, my father's only reaction was, you know, can you get a job in that kind of thing? 
Um, so uh, they, they were not really familiar with, you know, what political science uh, was all about or what kind of job one might get um, out of uh, studying studying such a thing. Um, but, you know, I was across the country and, and they were overall pretty relaxed uh, about it. So, Well, what, um, made, what made you interested so I, in political science? Uh, you know, I think I had always been interested in history. And actually, I had, even in high school, I had been interested in um, Stalin uh, and Russian history, and it was sort of a natural extension. And I think, you know, I was reading the newspaper, you know, when I was very little. I liked reading about uh, politics, and I think political science just brought it all uh, together for me. Um, you know, thinking about other countries, and um, and then thinking about uh, sort of people and how they made decisions. Uh, I just it was a sort of a very natural fit, and I never looked back. Was there um, like a big so, uh, political story from your youth that um, particularly influenced or resonated with you? Uh, no, I think um, you know really the the one thing uh, that stuck out with me stuck uh, stuck out in my mind perhaps was uh, the conflict over Cyprus um, because I'm of Greek nationality. My parents had uh, me and my siblings marching out, you know, on, on that particular issue. And, and uh, it was a, I came from a pretty politically aware family, uh, I would say. Were your parents uh, Greek uh, immigrants then, themselves? Uh, no, no, um, but their parents were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also growing up in California and living through Proposition 13 uh, when I was in uh, junior high and high school, uh, where all the funding was cut uh, for the lot, local libraries and for the schools, that actually made me fairly politically proactive as well. What was and Proposition so 13? Volunteering in a library. Uh, basically, it just eliminated property taxes and, uh, um, yeah. uh, and then the funding for schools and everything else and went down the drain. Uh, and so then I just became, I think, active in that regard uh, as well, volunteering at the local library and... Um, uh, to try to support it. And so uh, I, I think I probably always had some uh, interest in, in politics, but it, it didn't really manifest itself intellectually until I was in college and, and took uh, my first uh, political science course. Yeah, so um, so what happened? Uh, how, how did that uh, transition happen in college? Um, so I, I, you know, took a class on uh, basic comparative politics and, uh, you know, we, you know, did everything from Plato through, uh, to so to uh, sort of American presidential politics. And I just loved it. Uh, and then I took a course in Chinese politics and comparative communism and, um, Russian history. And it all kind of came together until my senior year where I spent the semester studying in what was then Leningrad. Um, and uh, I had taken Russian, uh, and that was really an extraordinary experience. What, what year was that? that? Was the fall of nineteen, yeah, the fall of nineteen eighty-three. Okay, uh, so and so the height of it, you know, peak Gorbachev, right? Peak yeah. Gorbachev, and um, it was a very dark time, but it was extraordinary, and uh, I really came to appreciate the people and the culture, the music, the art. Um, you know, I stood in the bread lines, uh, which were not as bad as it, they made us work on TV, but nonetheless, they existed, and uh, it, it was a it was a, a really transformative experience. Um, and I decided to continue on for my master's degree and went out uh, to Stanford, where they had a lot of good people. Condi Rice was there at the time, um, and uh, a lot of uh, Alexander Dahl and great sort of historians and 
scholars in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and I took courses uh, with all of them. Uh, so you took a, you took Condoleezza Rice you you, you took uh, Condi Rice's class. I did, I did. I took two courses from her. Which um, classes? Uh, uh, it was a comparison looking at um, NATO and um, looking at Eastern Bloc countries, a uh, two-quarter uh, course, um, and uh, you know, really fascinating uh, class. Um, did and, you develop any uh, like personal relationship with her during that time? Uh, some. She was my advisor, actually, oh. um, uh, when when I was there. Um, How was but, she as an advisor? Uh, um, you know what? She's uh, a very uh, generous person. Uh, we had different, we're of different political stripes and different perspectives, um, and uh, and she's very directed, I would say, and and a focused person. Um, uh, so, you know, she was a she was a good advisor. Um, uh, but, Did you get a sense um, that she had like you know, political she had ambitions? Other in mind. Yes, because she she certainly advised I, someone I think, else for a while. Um, yeah, I think I think there was always a sense that she was she had other places to go. I think there was you know she was a star. There was no two ways about it. She was already a star, um, and so it was just a matter of time. I don't think it was clear what she was going to do precisely, but she you know had that quality. Now, in this time, did you go back to the Soviet Union at all? Um, I didn't go back until I did my dissertation research uh, in 1991. Uh-huh. Um, so there was a big gap between uh, the time that I, uh, you know, was in college and then the time uh, that I you know, was working on my PhD. Um, and then because then I worked for the CIA, um, actually, as the Gorbachev analyst for two years. Oh, well, well and uh, what years were you the were at the CIA? 1985 to 1987, which was a great time because he had just taken power maybe two months before I started uh, working there. And um, so there was a lot of opportunity to try to figure out who this person was, what was he all about, was he actually different from what had come before. Uh, there was a lot of interest, obviously, within uh, the U.S. government at the highest levels, you know, President Reagan. Um, there was just... Um, you know, the Soviet Union was our major adversary. And so uh, everything that was done by the Soviet analysts uh, was sort of a higher priority. Uh, Did you so, ever have uh, a chance to brief President Reagan personally? Like, were you ever in the same room with him talking about the Soviet Union? No, I, I, I didn't. Um, I, that that um, opportunity was reserved for more senior yeah. analysts. Um, and uh, so I was kind of you know, freshly minted master student. Um, but I did get to speak with the people who interpreted for him when he met with Gorbachev. And um, I got to work on a video and, you know, about uh, Raisa Gorbacheva. And there were a lot of exciting opportunities that, um, that came down the pike um, simply because... Uh, it was the Soviet Union, and he was somebody new. And now, I really didn't know a lot about him at the time. I mean, how did you become so personally interested in, in Gorbachev? I mean, what, what's that connection? Oh, well, I mean, frankly speaking, it's what I was assigned to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was actually luck of the draw. So uh, you were hired by the CIA. You spoke uh, Russian. You had some Russian. experience in Russia. Mm -hmm. And so they said, okay, figure out who this guy is. Yes. That's, how, that's how, what it boiled down to. Like, and how do you go about that? 
Pardon me? Like, like how, what's like the methodology? Like, how do you go about kind of, um, you know, figuring out this, this kind of person, this, this uh, very early in his career, who obviously ends up being like a very transformative figure? Right. I mean, you read everything you possibly can find um, that he's ever written, ever spoken, you know, dating back to the times that he was, you know, secretary in charge of agriculture or he was a, you know, local leader. Um, you uh, have some, but very small, frankly, uh, human intelligence on him, um, uh, you know, that's gathered through other sources. Um, I mean, most of the material is open source, but it, it just requires a lot of sort of diligence and attention to detail in terms of sort of seeking out, you know, what he's saying, you know, continuities in, in his thinking, and then areas where you think you might see some changes, right? In, in areas where he's saying something that's different from the other leaders. And that was also part of the job was reading what the other um, Soviet leaders were saying to try to get a sense for how different he was from, from others. And did you get a sense early on that he'd be this transformative figure? Um, I will say this. Certainly, I didn't know that he was going to lead to the breakup of, of the Soviet Union. You didn't predict that as a junior analyst? No, I didn't. But I will say that pretty early on, I had the sense that what he was saying was different. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like doing analysis of, of China still today. It's like you hear one small thing uh, that makes you start to think something, and then another little piece of the puzzle comes you know, into play and, and soon enough you have an entirely new puzzle that you've constructed right from all these different pieces. Um, they give you a whole new picture of what's going on. And it's, it's, there's not like one thing, um, that changes everything. It's really about being attentive to many small details, uh, and nuances and then just putting them all together. Um, and so, Yes, I can say that, uh, quite honestly, that I knew pretty early on he was different. How different? Um, no, I didn't know. So over the course of your uh, career, um, have you ever met him? Did you ever get a chance to meet him never. personally? I, no, I never No, I never had a chance to meet him, unfortunately. I would have liked that. Um, so, so what compelled you to, to leave the, the CIA? It sounds like you're, I mean, in the middle of, in the middle of it, frankly, you're, we're working Gorbachev at the, the height of the Cold War. This has got to be a plum post. <laughs> it was, and it was, it was a great place to, to work, but, um, I kind of knew that I wanted to go back and, and do deeper research, um, because really what you're doing as an analyst is, you know, very much of the moment. There are longer papers on sort of bigger issues, but a lot of your time is taken up with, you know, preparing a short paper for a meeting or on a particular topic um, related to Gorbachev. And, and so it's very demand-driven. Um, and so it was fun and it was exciting. Um, but I was really interested in getting back to sort of deeper research uh, on the Soviet Union. It's so funny. So yeah. I, I just interviewed Dan Byman last week, uh, who has just mm -hmm. such a very similar trajectory as you in the sense that he was working as like a right out of grad school, working uh, the CIA for two years, and then, you know, it left uh, at the height of his, you know, doing some interesting work there to, to go back to school and do more research. I think for very similar reasons that you've just explained. 
That's, that is interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, so, so well, what, not so special after all. You are well. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just well. You know, I do a lot of these interviews, and and you know, you kind of sometimes hear um, similar stories, similar trajectories, sure. but the the contexts are slightly different. So he was just you know, as chance happened to be um, doing like Persian golf, being like a Persian golf analyst when Saddam uh-huh. invaded Kuwait. Um, and it was like there uh-huh. at the height of that. And, and here you are um, doing, you know, Soviet uh, analysis right at the yep. height of, of the rise of Gorbachev. And both of you um, decide to leave uh, the CIA during that period to, to, to pursue your research interests. And both of you now right. have like very influential careers in, in public policy. So it's just kind of interesting to, to see these patterns, um, uh, even though, you know, the context yeah, are, I mean, are somewhat I, I do different. Think, yeah, I do think in some respects that. Um, you know, government and sort of thinking or academia offer very different kinds of opportunities, right, and work environments. And um, in some cases, you know, people that are really good uh, at one thing are not necessarily good at the other. Um, because, you know, to, you know, do a PhD, to write a dissertation, um, or to do you know, sort of think tank work, requires that you're able to sit at an empty desk, right, day after day, and just think about what might be interesting, what might be important, um, what should I write about now, right? You have to create from scratch. Um, When I think you work in the government, a lot more of it comes from the top down, right? They have their own ideas of what they're interested in. There's room. There's room for you to to create and to think about what you think is important and to pitch things and to write about things. Um, but primarily your response is to demands from above. Uh, and so your hours and your time much more structured, right? And you have a production schedule. Um, here you have to be responsible for producing your own stuff all the time. Um, so I do think that there's some difference, right, for what people feel most comfortable in. And so where did you end up going uh, then after, after the CIA to get your PhD? So I went, I went to the University of Michigan um, because, in part, I was recruited by a former professor of mine uh, from Swarthmore uh, who had gone to Michigan, uh, Ken Lieberthal, um, and uh, in part because uh, the Soviet people I knew there, I really liked um, Matt Evangelista and, and Bill Zimmerman, so they had great professors. And um, so I went to Michigan, and uh, once I got there, though, uh, a number of the professors suggested that I already knew enough about the Soviet Union, and perhaps I should also do China and do comparative communism. And so I said, okay. And so I started to study Chinese uh, in my first year of graduate school, and I ended up doing a com- comparative dissertation, and I focused both on China and the Soviet Union. And that's really how I began to get interested in the environment and climate change, actually, because my dissertation, um, which I started working on in 1991, doing the field work in 91, um, was on Chinese and Soviet, and then became Russian, strategies on global climate change. So and what did you find? In the early 1990s. Because um, <laughs> this is right, 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 <laughs> right around the early Kyoto, you know, pre Kyoto. Yeah, years. they did not have much. Um, they did not have much of a strategy. Um, you know, thinking back to China at that time, um, there were very few people working on climate change. And in fact, I was part of a 
maybe the very first delegation um, when I was still a graduate student, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations um, organized a delegation led by Madeleine Kunin, who'd been the head of the EPA and the governor of Vermont, and uh, along with a couple of a professor from Princeton who focused on renewable energies and somebody from Battelle National Labs. And I was basically there just to hold people's bags because I, I knew something about China climate change from my research. And, you know, we went to China and we met with the people who were working on this. And really, um, that began some of the most important work in China on climate change because uh, that person from Batal National Lab struck up a relationship with uh, the Chinese scientists, uh, economists, uh, in the Energy Research Institute, uh, which is the most influential uh, institute uh, on energy within China, uh, and began to train them, really, to do modeling for CO2 emissions. Um, before that, all China really had was paleoclimatology, sort of you know, looking back in history. They really had nobody working with climate change. And when I was doing my dissertation research, and I used to you know, go for meetings and try to talk to people about it. They really could not figure out why I was interested in this. So how developed though at that time, like even in the United States was, was a focus on, on climate change or even like the the science of climate change. It was. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the science of climate change certainly drove it in the, in the West. I think what drove it in China was a demand by the West, (laughs) um, you know, the China participate in the discussions and negotiations, not just a demand, but, you know, China wanted to participate in the discussions and it was participating as a developing country, right, in a very different way than it is today. Um, and, you know, they, they set up a pretty elaborate structure over time um, that went both down through the provinces to the local level of officials uh, and across ministries uh, to try to figure out, um, you know, what the situation was for China with regard to climate change and what their position should be. And from the very beginning, they took a very hard line position, which was basically, we are not responsible for climate change, um, and we still need to grow our economy, and uh, and that was basically it. If you want to do something about climate change, mm-hmm. you need to take care of it. Well, well, in the early 1990s, don't they have a sort of a point there, right? Like they, they, at that point, hadn't been like a huge historic committer and were not a huge contemporary, uh, contemporaneous uh, emitter, right? There's some point to it, although I think, you know, if you really wanted to consider China's historic uh, contribution to climate change, you probably, you know, look back to the, you know, devastation of the Chinese forests, uh, which was enormous beginning back in the Qin Dynasty, you know, Uh, you would look back even to the 1950s um, and 1960s uh, during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, where there was massive, massive pollution in China. There were like 700 factories in Beijing alone uh, during that time. You know, the steel, massive backyard steel uh, production, um, all the small coal-burning furnaces, I think. Um, I think there was a lot of contribution that we were not aware of. Now, does it rise to the level of the United States? Certainly not. Um, But I'm not convinced that China was ever held accountable for some pretty significant contributions, in fact. That's right. Um, 
That that's interesting. I, I hadn't. I, I'd like to see like Todd Stern bring up the deforestation in the uh, Chin Dynasty <laughs> <laughs> during the next um, uh, during the next. Yeah, meeting. I think I think I think Todd had his hands full. I have yeah. to say. Um, and I should but, say that is for people who don't know that's that's the U.S. chief climate negotiator. Um. So so, where did you uh, go from there? Like like, how did you translate this? Like, which sounds really cutting edge uh, for for the time. I mean, it, absolutely cutting edge. How how one, did you? One would think it was either cutting edge or of absolutely no interest to most people. Well, it's funny. I mean, either way, or you I, could have been I, like I, a I Soviet will, specialist, it, right? right? And then like a few years later, the the Soviet Union could have collapsed. So, right, right, right. Um, no, and I mean, I think. Um, Yes, I was a, a good deal ahead of my time, though. Um, you know, so at some point, some pe- person might have thought it was somewhat irrelevant the work um, uh, that I was doing. Um, but but it also helped me, you know, begin to look more deeply into China, the environment. And so, you know, after I finished my dissertation, I I, I taught for a year at the University of Washington. Uh, and then I needed to move to New York City, and I, I got the job at the Council on Foreign Relations. And as a China uh, fellow, because frankly speaking, uh, at the time that I was looking for a job, there were no jobs uh, for Russia. Uh, nobody cared anymore uh, about Russia. Uh, it was all about China. Um, so it was a big switch uh, in terms of just the world of academia. Uh, there wasn't the same focus that there had been, uh, you know, in 19 in the mid 1980s uh, on the Soviet Union. Um, that Russia didn't hold the same sort of allure, um, wasn't just not seen as, as important. Um, so in any case, I, I got the job at the Council on Foreign Relations, and I was very fortunate because my boss, uh, Les Gelb, um, was very supportive of my interest in China and the environment. And again, it was not a topic that many people thought about at the time. Um, so this was sort of you know, mid 19 Nineties uh, into you know early two thousands. Um, what sort of papers were you writing? What sort of policies were you researching at that time? Um, so I was doing a lot on climate change at, at the time. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, Al Gore was very interested in climate change. Um, so uh, the NSC became interested. There was a big sort of uh, discussion uh, in Washington about the potential for. Uh, environmental NGOs, which all began in the mid-1990s in China, um, to sort of contribute to a change in the political system within China uh, in the way that the environment had proved to be a trigger in other Asian states and in some of the Eastern European countries. Um, oh, so there was that sort of interest. Wait, so, mm-hmm. so, so the idea is that like civil society could grow if civil society was focused on environmental issues and that might have like systemic ramifications for the, the politics of the country. Well, it's, it's really that, um, there are, that the environment has proved to be an issue around which, um, many people, uh, become mobilized. Right. And so it could be a dam that's being built. Um, you know, when you have an authoritarian government, Right, um, there's sort of latent opposition, uh, but then when you but you have like a major project that's being built, or you have something like Chernobyl, right? You have a major disaster um, that, or you watch the you know RLC dry up, whatever it might be, um, that these draw they tap into sort of very 
fundamental nationalist feelings you know, that the people might have, concerns about the environment, concerns about their children's future. So the environment is one of those issues where it doesn't really matter you know, whether you're a you know, wealthy business person or you're a, um, a university professor or you, you know, work in a local factory or whatever you might be, um, everyone can share the same kind of concern. Uh, so um, that's why um, there was a sense that, you know, could the environment in China um, provide, and the sort of development of these environmental NGOs, um, provide that sort of organizational framework and issue-based framework uh, to push for change more broadly within Chinese political system, right? Because to address the environment, you need the rule of law, you need a degree of transparency in terms of information, uh, you need official accountability, you need all those elements of basic good governance that China didn't and really still doesn't have. Um, so that was the idea. So there was a lot of interest in the topic actually in Washington, somewhat surprisingly. What did you find? Um, did, did, did it did it have that effect? Um, so the environment clearly has not um, transformed, led to the transformation of the Chinese political system. Um, but I would say... Uh, that it has carved out a niche for itself. And so um, it is there, it, the environment, in terms of civil society, um, the environment is sort of the area in which there are the most uh, NGOs in China. Um, it is probably the most vibrant element of civil society. Uh, it has moved from being an area where it was largely, you know, journalists and others who were interested in the environment to now encompass people with technical expertise and who can really, you know, push for change. Um, so I think that it has it has helped, um, but it certainly hasn't proved transformative. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. Um, so have you been at the CFR the entire time? I mean, I'm calling you right now at the yeah, CFR office. I have I have been here uh, right since uh, for almost 21 years now. Never uh, tempted to so go back been, into government. Um, you know, there's a, a mix of sort of um, family responsibility and um, and work. And uh, my husband's work is here. I've raised my children here, and and frankly, it's a phenomenal job. Um, you know, it's a, it's a job in which uh, you can spend as much time in Washington as you want. Uh, you can testify before Congress. You can brief policymakers. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to meet and brief almost all of the current administration's uh, sort of top foreign policy uh, makers <laughs> or people involved in foreign policy. Um, so there's a lot of interaction with Washington. Uh, there's opportunity to, you know, work with my Chinese colleagues. There's opportunities to, you know, consult for business to try to help them uh, work in China. You know, I've I've worked with major U.S. corporations to help them develop a sustainability uh, program for their work in China. Uh, it's a it's a kind of job that allows for um, a lot of development of, of different parts of one's interests. Mm -hmm. right? Well, we, with regard to China, we just have a few minutes left, but I, I want to plug your books um, and and ask you, like, what inspired you to to you know put all your 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 research into like a, a book form and not an academic book, like a, a pop you know those published in popular press, right? Um, 
Right. So, well, my first book was with Cornell Press, um, mm-hmm. The River Runs Black, and the second was with Oxford. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah. On the trade side. On the but, trade side. But yeah. I would say that the um, that actually in the, in both cases, um, you get to a certain point where you've had done all this research and on different parts of a topic, and it kind of all comes together. And I just felt like, okay, there's a book here. Like, I have a book that needs to come out of me. Um, and that's really what drove um, The River Runs Black uh, on the environment. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it turned out, I think, uh, to be uh, a good sort of, you know, alarm, you know, canary in the coal mine uh, kind of book. Um, came out first in 2004. And, uh, you know, I remember at the time, you know, some, you know, other reviews were kind of like, oh, you know, China's just going to grow out of this problem. It's not going to be a big deal. Um, but in the end, it turned out to be a huge deal uh, for China. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, it's just something that drives you um, when you've done a lot of research on a topic and you see something that you think maybe some other people don't necessarily see but you think is important. And I think that's what really... Um, Makes you write a book. So, do you have another book in you right now? Like, what what's next? I do have another book in me right now. I suspect um, it as much. Right now, actually, I am I am focused. Um, the environment will be one part of it, but I am focused at looking at uh, Xi Jinping's reform efforts uh, across the board in the economy, um, in terms of the environment, the military, uh, and the corruption campaign, and trying to understand first how different is what Xi Jinping is doing. Uh, from what's come before, because I think there's a sense that it's vastly different, and I think perhaps it's not as different as we think. Uh, and then second, is he putting in place sort of the institutions and the uh, you know, sort of frameworks to make these reforms work, or is it all going to come sort of crumbling down? So that's the book I'm working on now. Excellent. Uh, any uh, estimated publication date when we can read it? Uh, I would say just about a year from now. Excellent, uh, excellent. So... Yes. <laughs> Stay tuned. We will. All right. Well, let's 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 speak again in a year. You can plug your book. We can talk about your new book. This sounds great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Economy. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was a lot of fun. Uh, just one quick thing. Uh, thank you all who are emailing me suggestions of people to interview. I'm going through your suggestions. I'm you know doing a little vetting uh, and seeing if I could get it done. And if all goes according to plan, one of your suggestions should be my topic for next week. And it's someone who looks really interesting and who was not on my radar screen and who looks, at least to me, to have a pretty interesting story to tell. So stay tuned and keep sending me those suggestions. See you later. Bye. Bye.